This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey. That's Caleb, that's Robert, that's the horn, Ryan Horn, and we are digging into the very, very last chapter of Nehemiah 13. And again, guys, one of my favorite Uh, books in the entire Bible. I just love the lessons here. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, there are leadership lessons here. There's lessons about how to be a good father, how to be a good citizen, how to be a good steward of the talents that you've been given. I mean, there's so many good things. There's political lessons here, all kinds of stuff, but this is the end. And what you would normally be expecting with such an epic story up to this point is just some sort of grandiose ending to this entire thing about Nehemiah, because this is the last you know, time chronologically, we hear about Nehemiah in the scriptures in terms of what was actually historically happening, but we definitely don't get that. We do not get that big dramatic uh, ending. This isn't that awesome uh, theatrical ending that we were hoping for, Uh, but there is still a whole, whole lot of great stuff that we can look at in terms of Nehemiah 13. But Ryan, even right from the beginning, you were talking about off air, even in the first, a couple of chat or a couple of uh, verses rather, there's there's some pretty important stuff and it attaches to other parts of the Old Testament as well. Yeah, so it actually goes back to Numbers um, and they call it the book of Moses. And in it was found written, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So enter the temple. For they did not meet with the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. So during this time, uh, Balaam was a prophet uh, and the Moabites basically brought him in to curse the Israelites. And as he got up to curse them, he could only speak praises. God changed his tune and made him speak praises of the Israelites rather than curses. And so Balak, I think is the uh, king's name in numbers, was very upset with this. And so basically Balaam basically told the king, the only way to uh, defeat the Israelites is to send your women send your women in there. And they basically, um, sent their women in there. The, uh, men fornicated, the Israelite men fornicated with those women. Those women bore children, their children. And guess who was taking care of those children? The Moabite women. I mean, it's basically what prima nocta and the, uh, from Braveheart, you know, it's like, Hey, if we can't kill them all, let's breed them out. And that's basically what they pulled here. But this kind of sets up to what's going on now. Like, like you, we were building up this crescendo at the end. Like, is everything going to work out great? And it's like, it's not because Jesus hasn't returned yet. I mean, this isn't, this isn't where, where it ends, but it ends not very well for the Israelites here. I mean, Nehemiah comes back and he comes back to them falling back into their old ways. And so Elishabad, the priest, um, basically is a, um, a member of the family. Did you say Elisha Bab? Did I say Elisha? Elisha. Say extra B. Bro, sorry. Sorry, Joby. Joby is going to light you on fire. Elisha, I can't read from far away. I've been Elisha told. will bring it closer to Elisha Bab. Elisha I like Elisha Bab. I like Elisha Bab too. I'm sorry. I couldn't let it go. It's all good. Come on. Elisha Bab, who was appointed to the chambers of the house of God. So this guy is appointed to the chambers of the house of God, was a relative of Tobiah. We all remember Tobiah and that jerk. Yeah. So, uh, so who's a Moabite, you know, and they take, they prepare a room for him in one of their largest chambers, the chambers that are supposed to hold the taxes, the first fruits, the things to keep the Levites going. What brought them into, um, uh, what brought them into, uh, 
they're um oh man i went i went brain dead into the 70 years of captivity was how they didn't take care of the house of god and how they broke their covenant they're doing it again and this time the guy that tried to kill nehemiah they build a house for him in the house of god and he was related to Tobiah, and his name's Ilyasha Babadu. Is that how it is? I mean, Ilyasha Babadu. I, 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 I ruined it all. all right. So at least I got Tobiah right. right. You <laughs> nailed Tobiah. You absolutely Sorry. nailed Tobiah. But Robert, yeah. since you have the the uh, silkiest voice out of all of us, you know the yeah. strong, the Jockoist type if voice. I'm actually talking. To the if mic. you talk into the mic, into it'll work great mic. for you. But if you will into the mic, read verses four through seven, and then we'll discuss. Oh no, I've got to mess up Ilyasha Bab. No, just Ilyasha Babadu. Okay, right. just get it, just get it close. Now before this. Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was aligned with Tobiah, allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. So go ahead and go ahead and read verse six and seven as well. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of King of Babylon, I had returned to the King. I, I what do I got here? Art, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, fantastic. King of Babylon. I'd returned to the King. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the King and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah and preparing for him a room in the courts of the house of our God. So there's so much here right from the beginning because this is totally uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play situation. Yeah. So in here we have uh, what, what you set up, Ryan. Uh, we have uh, a, you know, a relative of Tobiah, a guy that was literally trying to lure Nehemiah away to kill him, is, is now like integrally, integrally involved in what's happening and the goings-on inside the city. And then we see that uh, Nehemiah had fulfilled his promise to King Artaxerxes that he didn't violate the trust of the king because the king trusted that he meant it, that, hey, I'm your cupbearer. I'm basically keeping you and the rest of the royal family alive right now, but I need an undefined period of time to be away from you to do something that's only important to me, that's only like somewhat important to you. And so he goes back and immediately, like again, there's a lot, there's like months and months and years, like in here, even in these few verses, but immediately, the people start falling away and they start putting, you know, bad, corrupt people in places of power. And they were, they were led by these, these people and what they essentially did. And this is how we talked about it off air. They went back to their old ways, like just right from the jump, like the boss wasn't there. And so they went back to screwing around playing horse with, you know, a, a waste paper basket and, you know, balled up piece of paper. Like they, it's just the cats away. The mice will play. And it's like, man, we're not different from people 2,500 years ago. We're, we're still like this. I can just imagine Nehemiah's anger. It's like back when I had a house and I had roommates, like, let's just say like my worst enemy of my roommates, like not with my roommates, but somebody that we know mutually, like I'm gone for a business trip and I come back home and that guy's sitting in my living room, watching a movie, drinking my good whiskey. Like I would lose my mind. Like I, I totally get his anger. It's just like, seriously guys, like one, you're my bros and you're deciding that you're going to let this guy into our house. You know, on top of that, he's drinking my good stuff. Like, I mean, the best wine was in that store. I guarantee you Tobiah was drinking that wine. Everything that was left for those, for the Levites and the priests, Tobiah was 
putting his fingers in. Well, this was like 12 to 15 years later. My understanding is, is 12 to 15 years later that he comes back, right? The 32nd year of Artaxerxes. So um, one thing that, that I thought of here was that, you know, when they're looking for a place for Tobiah to stay, it's like, oh, we're, we're not doing anything with that room, right? So go stay here. Well, that's, that's because they, they began being disobedient a long time ago, yep. right? Because that was the room that was previously for offerings, right? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. for them to, if they're keeping the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath year, you know, where they don't labor and they're taking care of, of all those offerings to put in there, then they wouldn't look around and say that room's available, you know? So it was, it was other, like the way I think of this is like, it's other disobediences that lead to more disobediences, right? Oh, yeah. It's that they're reaping what they're sowing. So, you know, I, I'm thinking of the application standpoint. It's like there are, there are little things that you can either stop doing or start doing that are going to lead to far worse things. Yeah. It's just funny how they break a covenant, like a covenant, like they were all repentant of and they signed the seal and they did everything. And, and then they come back. It's so easy within 10 to 12 years. Yeah. But again, like Caleb was saying, this is a slow fade. You know, yeah. what was it they, they were giving 10% of the first fruits and did that go to 8% one year it's, and then slowly it went down to five and then to three and then they just quit giving and then that room went empty and then it set empty for a couple of years and it's kind of like you, you know, it's how we are in sin. They didn't you know, even, how many areas of our life do we look at and if we were to fast forward, you know, or if we were to go back 10 years ago, sometimes we would catch ourselves in a position that we would never be where we are today. 10 years ago, we would have thinking that we would have put all of the safeguards in place that would have protected us and guarded us and kept us in these railings where God wants us to be. The sad part, it wasn't even a lot. It was a third. They only Mm. had to do a third of a shekel. So it was probably a third of grain, a third of wine. So they didn't have to come out like a half, like they, like what was usually taxed. They were given the lease and still couldn't do it. Yeah. Within 10 to 12 years. It wasn't couldn't. They decided yeah, just, they just, wouldn't. Uh, that, that somehow doesn't apply to me because Nehemiah is not here anymore. Um, Caleb, what version do you read from? Uh, NASB. Okay, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't going to be like the message or something like that. So if you wouldn't <laughs> mind reading uh, verses uh, 7 through 9. That far. Yeah. Um, and, I came to, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil of Eliashib had committed for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courtyards of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household articles out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned the utensils of the house of God there with the grain offering and the frankincense. So as I was reading through this, I'll admit, I didn't catch this until uh, after, which the, the word cleansed should have been like a, a, a trigger for me, because as you guys know, my, my favorite description of Jesus in the Gospels is whenever he showed us just a hint of the Lion of Judah when he cleansed the temple. Uh, there are some people believe that that happened once. Uh, I agree with the scholarship that says that that actually happened twice. So we see that in Matthew 21, 12, uh, starting in Matthew, or it's in Matthew 21 and in John 2. And so uh, I see it as him clearing the temple right at the beginning of his ministry and then clearing the temple after he had arrived back in Jerusalem uh, the week of, you know, Passion Week, right? You know, whenever he would end up dying on the cross. But regardless, if you believe that it happened once or twice, this is where we got to see righteous indignation acted out in real time by the Savior. He didn't lose his cool. He didn't regret it later, which is how most of us would categorize our anger. 
So when we get mad and, you know, punch a wall or throw something or say, say a bad word or make a comment towards somebody or get in a fight, like, you know, of course we, we, since we're not sociopaths, we're going to come back later and be like, oh man, that was pretty freaking stupid. But this is a direct corollary. And that's what a lot of the commentaries I read to what was done at this time to what Jesus did in clearing the temple. And Jesus's accusation was that, you know, you've turned this father's house into a, a den of, a den of robbers or uh, thieves. And you've, you've made business of my father's house. And what was happening in the temple at that time, this just occurred to me, is business was slowly encroaching into the everyday nature of what was happening in the temple. That's not how it was originally started. They didn't build the temple and then say, all right, let's set up our shops, right? But it was just that slow creep towards that. And that's how it ended up happening. How do you think it happened here as well? Nehemiah leaves to go, go back and be with King Artaxerxes and, and kind of, you know, serve out his duties as cupbearer before he comes back for a second governorship. And while he was gone, slow creep, slow creep, slow creep. There, there's a lot of connections here. It's greed. Greed caught up with them. I mean, that's why they opened the gates on the Sabbath and opened the Holy Temple for basically business, you know, and uh, it, came, it come, came back haunted him and it's going to come back and haunt him again when Jesus comes back. So or when Jesus comes and it takes a, I don't know. I, I think you know, you can relate this over to, to business in some ways and you can go, if you don't have, um, you know, a, a, a chief of operations that is making sure that everyone adheres to the systems and processes of the businesses, how easily can things fall away? Oh, and they can go into a state of disrepair to where there's eating into your profits. You can do it in a household where you don't have a father that's active and uh, morally holding everybody accountable to spending time, you know, as a family, you know, in prayer or eating meals together or keeping the house in check or respecting mom or what it is and how quickly things just lead to a state of disrepair. I mean, there has to be someone of significance that's in charge, that's willing to hold the line to be able to keep everything on the, on the path that God intended to be to operate well. Yeah, and it's just, I think he d- ends up doing that by appointing a treasurer. I think he fire. He basically comes in and fires everybody. It's like, it's like Nehemiah figures out like maybe I have to live here for these people just to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was crazy to read about the Levites and how they were not given their portions, and then they had to flee to their fields. So like the Levites weren't being honored the way they were supposed to be honored in in the covenant, and so they had to go and work. They had to eat. You know, they wanted to live in a dry place and eat, you know, and they couldn't do that there because they weren't upholding their covenant. And who knows what was in the storehouse? Maybe the storehouses were empty because they sold it for money rather than giving up that first fruits um, to the storehouse. So it's just, I just don't, I I guess it's hard to kind of like, we all do it and we all probably subconsciously do it, but like, we know what's right and wrong. Why do we always revert back to, this certain area, you know, it's well, like, let's, let's talk about the, the phrase you used, Robert, which is hold the line. Okay. So as we see in this chapter, we see small detours again, small detours away from God's law, but they can end up being catastrophic. So the good thing here is that Nehemiah had come back there to rebuke them, but tithing was neglected, right? It became less important to these people. Sabbath was ignored. Right. But it wasn't ignored outright immediately. It was a slow creep towards the Sabbath being ignored. The marriages were being mixed again, which again is not a defense of, uh, 
not intermixing races or anything like that. It's a completely different time, completely different context. But at the time, they were not supposed to be mixing with other people groups outside of Israel or outside of Jerusalem. And there was no wood for the temple offerings. Can you be so bold as to go into that of saying, we've got to train up our kids to be able to marry other Christians? I mean, is, that's you kind of a bold topic for us to talk about right now. But, I mean, obviously, we're not looking at it from a racism standpoint. Right. We're not looking at it from an ethnicity of any kind. But I think we are looking at it from an alignment with God. We are God's people. And how are we guarding our children to be able to stay in alignment with that covenant? Right. How many fathers are all too eager to ignore the fact that the the dude that is now asking for their daughter's hand in marriage has no connection to the Christian worldview, no connection to Christ or the discipleship therein. But, you know, he's a good looking guy. He can protect her. He's got a good job. He can provide for. And so they ignore the parts that could send their, their daughter and their grandkids to hell potentially right? You know, living in a bad house doesn't send you to hell. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it's like, let's say your daughter's not even a Christian at that point. Like, I, I think you're, you're spot on, like fathers with daughters out there, but even fathers with, with sons, it's like when, when you're talking about not being, you know, unequally yoked, that's what they're talking about. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, cause this is where I, I grew up not going to church and my wife grew up going to church of Christ. And I thought that meant unequally yoked. It's like, oh, I, I started going to a Baptist church. She goes to Church of Christ, and they're kind of weirdos. And so I need to you know, do something different. But it's like they don't have any attachment, no discipleship. They're not following Christ at all. And you're just like, ah, yeah, but he makes six figures. There's we that. know the, the ruin that can come from, from marrying a non-believer, right? Either way, you know, man, woman, doesn't matter. But the ruin that can come from that is far worse than the ruin that you could have of let's say struggling through life because you can't hold a job, you know, or you don't have the best accommodations or you don't have family around or whatever it is, right? Is that that, that ruin is so temporary and so much less than the eternal ruin that you could have by not knowing the Lord. And for, certainly for any, any kids that come out of that marriage. So, I mean, absolutely the, that's, this is, that's a call to us that rings true without a doubt is that, you know, you, and you can kind of look back at like the, the time when there were arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. It's like, I kind of like that yeah, idea. Yeah. There's something there, <laughs> you know? Right? Yeah. It's, like, yeah. You know? Yeah. it's not as For crazy sure. as it sounds on yeah. its head. Yeah, its exactly. And a hundred percent, like this is not talking about um, where you're from, like what you look like, what your skin color is. None of that. It's that if you, if, if our God is your God, then, then we're on the same page. Yeah. Then we're equally yeah. yoked. But they're, they're also just trying to, keep their society going you know they're trying to stay as a a people and you can't do that and and it comes back to what was happening in numbers they're trying to breed them out and so um you look back in in nehemiah when we talked about this in 10 is they you know who's going to read who's going to be able to read the hebrew if we decide to marry the moabites and the moabite women are teaching our children the moabite ways and not teaching them our language they're going to slowly die off as a people if they become unequally yoked. And it goes back to a sickness that when you brought this up, Robert, so you're a dad, you're trying to be pragmatic. Your girl's so excited about her bow and she, you know, this is, she's ready. She's already thinking about what it's going to be like to walk down the aisle and the pictures and the bridesmaids dresses and the whatever's and this and that. But fast forward five years, your 
beautiful young Christian daughter now has a kid or two in tow Mm -hmm. to church by herself because the guy doesn't see any value in doing that. That's, that's what your family does. That's y'all's tradition. I'm gonna go hit some golf balls. I'm gonna go to the shooting range. I'm gonna go roll. I'm gonna go do something else. And so now you have a bride that is doing missionary dating while married. And so by missionary dating, I'm not talking about a position of sexual intercourse. I'm talking about people that will date the problem, like the girls that date the problem boy. Like I can fix them. Like I, he just needs, he just needs me. And I, I I can fix him. I can bring him to Jesus. It's like, no, the odds of you doing that and fixing him versus the odds of him dragging you down into his degradation. Oh my gosh. There's a major inequity there. And, but, but again, just like the people in Nehemiah's day, they were all too willing to just, eh, you know, I won't hold the line here. So check this out, a little story. I'll, I'll try to go fast with it, but um, it's definitely in my playbook. A buddy of mine uh, from Southeast Kansas, all-state wrestler, whenever he was growing up, um, man, he really, really liked this girl. And uh, it was a real small community, Caney, Kansas. And um, he uh, finally got up the courage and asked this girl if he you know, go on a date. And so he shows up at her house. She's, she is the church girl. He is the opposite of that in every possible way. And he gets over to the house and walks in, and she says, uh, well, my dad's in there in the kitchen. And so uh, he walks in, kind of introduce himself to his dad. Dad backs his chair up, turns over to him, and he says, come here, boy. Come sit down. He's <laughs> like, all-state wrestler. He's like, I really like this girl, but what am I doing here? You know, For those of you who know, he wasn't tapping the chair next to him. He was tapping his <laughs> own leg. For yeah, those of you not watching this, his right. own leg. It, yep, Dad just sit there, tapped his leg like this, asking this big old you know wrestler to come over and come sit down. So he... He walked over and he's like, I really like this girl. And so he kind of sat down and the dad put his arm up on his shoulder. And he said, okay, all right. It's like, you, uh, you want to date my daughter, huh? He's like, yes, sir. He said, all right, well, you're going to date me too. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, what is it? You guys are going to go to, go to a movie, maybe go to dinner. Was that about three, four hours? He said, I'll tell you what, you come back next week and you work for four hours on the land with me. And then you can take my daughter for four hours. Heck yeah. And he did that the whole way through. Did he have to bring him some foreskins after? Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Slightly different. But But the the point is, this kid that wasn't raised in church, wasn't a Christian, he discipled that kid, led him to the Lord. They ended up getting married, have four kids, love the Lord. So he invested the time into that boy that would come and be the potential suitor for his daughter. Awesome. See, you know, I think about that. I mean, that is in my playbook. I don't know if it's going to be the sit down on my lap, boy, but I'm putting it in my playbook to invest <laughs> that amount of time. I mean, I would rather give like, every asset that I have, if I were to liquidate it in a briefcase of cash, I would rather give that kid that cash than give him my daughter to be able to take out. And I think we lose the weight of what it is and the sacrifice that we need to go through in order to be able to guard our children and make sure that they do you know, marry somebody of that same Christian caliber. Well, and guess who was watching as this was all going on when he's sitting on this guy's lap, the gal, she's watching this all go on. So let's say if the guy was like, I'm not sitting on your lap, get out of here. You just watched a young suitor of yours Mm -hmm. disrespect your father, right? Even, even though your father asked for something kind of ridiculous, he, Mm -hmm. he showed disrespect. And in the first time meeting the father of meeting your father, he gives that person disrespect. Like 
does he do that to waiters and waitresses as well? Yeah. Is he going to treat the staff at a hotel poorly? Yeah, it's going to like, that way. Right. Yeah. And, right. but, but then like, what if he does, let's say, let's, let's walk this out. He walks over, he sits down on dad's lap. Dad's got the arm around his shoulder. Dad pitches him on the idea of three to four hours. You're going to work for me. And he goes, I don't need to work for you. I'm taking your daughter out and get out of here, old man. He doesn't, again, if you're the girl, you need to feel valued. Mm-hmm. You're the apple of your father's eye. This guy's trying to get a bite at the apple and try to take, you know, take over the apple at some point. And he's not even willing to do three to four hours of work because think about it. We've all been, you know, our first love situation or any of those teeny bop, you know, love movies. I would do anything for them, but I won't do that. It turns into a meatloaf song. It's just like you, you, you get to that point to where it's just like, Hey, I would do anything for you. Okay. You willing to work the land with her dad for three to four hours once. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about the, the, the stories from the Old Testament where you, you had to work seven you're an indentured yeah. servitude for yeah. seven years. And you don't even get the daughter. You and he's like, <laughs> JK, yeah. you're getting the ugly one. And yeah. so it's like, the, those are the situations. Like, I think that that's a big deal. As fathers, you should look for that type of just commitment from, from a kid because like, you know, Caleb and I, we, we only have sons. And so we're, we're a little bit different right now in terms of what we're going to be focusing on. But if I heard that, you know, sweet baby James was went over to a guy's house to take the girl out and instead went and worked the farm for a couple hours. I'd be like, let's go, let's combine the families. This is how we're going to get after it. Like that's, that, that's amazing. Hit the table. I did hit the table, but it was with, it wasn't like, because I just like, you know, it was, I meant to do it. Right. So it was with fervor. Right. And it's what what was meant to happen. So as a, as a dad with only sons in light of, you know, Balaam from verse two, right. Saying that this is how you get them away is through your women. So I, I need some ideas for like, what's the, what's the, what's inverse the inverse of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause my wife, like she'll do that, whatever it is, like she's in, you know what I mean? Yeah, your wife's so kind of a thug. I, I like yeah. it. <laughs> I think there is the time with family, right? I mean, I have three daughters and so my wife and three daughters, any girl that's going to come and potentially like, like like woo over brother, man, it's got to go through all those daughters. Now I know you have four boys. There's no girls that's there, but I think that there is an investment of time and seeing how they interact that the other siblings really get a chance to get to know them, you know, and, and, and before they go out on their own, there is a process of them together with the family. You know, maybe it is helping your wife out with a meal or, you know, a, a project that's going on or something that she's doing. But yeah, well, I wonder if, if that is the corollary to where it's like, maybe you as dad, you take a back seat, but then you see how they interact with mama. Right. Because like in our cases, we happen to marry lionesses that can take care of themselves and they have appropriate levels of scary aggressiveness um, (laughs) that I've seen in both uh, your wife and mine. But like it, that's such a cool thing because you're getting to see how they interact with other people. And the point is not because they're dating your family or they're marrying your family. Because people say that you don't marry the girl, you marry their family. It's like, no, with, with a biblical worldview, it's like, you don't become one flesh with their entire family. Thank goodness. Like you're becoming one flesh just with them. And the family is just a byproduct. But that's what I tell people all the time that have, you know, familial issues. It's like, well, you're not, you're not connected to them in the same way in the spiritual realm. Like it sucks that your father-in-law is a, you know, a rude piece of crap, but you know, at the end of the day, it's about you and your relationship with your bride. But I wonder if that's a good corollary. And also just remember someday you don't have daughters now, but you will have four. Right. You know, there's the day where each one of those and you want to get to know that girl and be able to give counsel to your son of, man, I get it, buddy. I say, she's beautiful, man. She's incredible. But son, do you really feel like she treats you right? Do you really feel like she honors you? 
the way that you have seen me honor your mom? You know, do you see the way that she treats this, whatever that is, whether it's the good that you're highlighting or it's the negative that you're highlighting. I think just being there and being involved, I think is the main process. You got anything on that for what it's like from the other side for dads with sons? For dads with sons? I mean, I just hope my son finds a godly woman, you know, both of them. Um, I hope they find somebody a lot like their mom. Their mom uh, did a lot of, you know, God did a lot. God did the changing in my life, but Rachel sure did help, you know, um, in, in growing me as a, as a man. Um, you know, like I said, a couple episodes back, like I was, I was real DB, you know, um, I was immature. I was stupid and selfish. And I think getting married and finally having to put somebody else before yourself, uh, grows you. But then, you know, adding kids to the mix is just an amazing thing because like you're all in now. You're, it's not about you anymore. You know, and so I want my sons to kind of realize that, you know, when they have wives that they have, you know, they have a sidekick, they have somebody that's next to them that that's going to go through life with them, but they need to treat her with a lot of respect and, and love and and dignity. I think the biggest thing that I want to instill in my sons is just lead your family to church. I mean, I feel like that's just something that lacks nowadays is like you, you said earlier in the conversation about, you know, um, the, the mother leading the kids to church while dad's going to play golf. And that's so far too often what we see in our church nowadays. I mean, I see it in our church right now. You know, you see all these women at church, but where are their husbands? You know, if their husbands are there, um, are they watching the baseball game in the sanctuary when the pastor's preaching? You know, because they don't want to miss an inning. It's like, our kids see that. Our kids know that. They know what we take seriously and what we don't take seriously. And I think it's just a call for men that, Church is something important. It's not just some legalistic thing. It's something that leads your family into a community and be a part of that community, not just be a byproduct of it. And I just see it far too often right now. Yeah. And you see so many connections to, okay, what is your family paying attention to and what things are they picking up? Because yes, kids pick up on those cues. But isn't it interesting? Because even in the last chapter of Nehemiah here, we see in verse 18, man, old habits die hard. And that doesn't mean just with individuals. It means with entire generations of people. Because verse 18 is, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so you might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal with the Sabbath? Well, it's a violation of God's law. That's not an insignificant thing, especially at this time. But I mean, what, what the reference uh, being made here is back to the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in uh, 17.2, he rebuked these same people's fathers for doing essentially this exact same thing in the exact same way, and now they're doing it. And the way I see it is some people will say, if your father was abusive, it's likely that he was abused and that he was abused and then that person was abused and you're probably an abuser as well right? It's not exactly the generational sin when people make that, that comment, but you've heard or seen some statistics about people that are sexual assaulters. Like they were likely sexually assaulted and the people that assaulted them were likely sexually assaulted and how it goes on. But there is a way that if you believe in generational sin and curses and all that, that's not what we're talking about today, but it's like things can stop with you. So let's say, because I have alcoholism in my family, there have been members of my family that have literally drank themselves to death when they were found by police, vodka's coming, coming out of the pores of their skin, rough situation, right? There's also 
uh, people that I know that have situations where there's been generational sexual sin. So whether it was abuse or looking at porn or prostitution or something like that. And so if you look at that as your identity, like, oh, I'm such and such, so-and-so of a family of drinkers or a family of uh, adulterers or a family of divorce or a family of whatever, like you're selling yourself short that you can't be the one that stops that. And so like in my family, whenever I drink, I drink responsibly. I've never been drunk. I've never been out of control drunk. My kids will see me consume alcohol, but they're never going to see dad stumbling around, tripping over beer bottles, getting in fights. They're not going to see that. And I certainly didn't see that growing up. Like my dad drank responsibly my entire life that, I, that I've been around him. But we, I guess we sell ourselves short a little bit, but look at this 2,500 year old rebuke. It's like, look, you idiots. Like, don't, you know, the scriptures just like I do. You've read uh, Jeremiah. Why are you still doing this? And so I don't know if it, I don't know where y'all want to take the conversation from here, but does that speak to the human condition? Is that sin nature? Is that the, you know, long lasting impact of satanic and dark forces on all of us? I mean, it can go a lot of different ways. It's sin nature. I mean, we are, even as believers, we're going to have a sin nature. I mean, that's why we need Christ. Um, and so it's just, in those times, do we listen to the Holy Spirit? Do I listen to the Holy Spirit when it's one of those mornings on Sunday? I just rather not just go. I just don't want to because I'm tired. And the Holy Spirit's like, you need to go to church. You need to take your family to church. You need to lead. But you know what? I'm going to let my flesh take over and be like, no, I'm too tired. I'm going to block out the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's what it comes down to. I mean, these there's so many things that could come in front of us that our flesh could desire, like money, sex, you name it, that will keep us from listening to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's just basically what happened here is, I mean, they weren't listening to the prophets. Um, you know, they weren't putting all, of, they weren't putting God in front like they should. And, and they're breaking their covenant. And so I think that's where we run into in our modern day is, we break our covenant with God as believers when we stop doing what he wants us to do, you know, what he's called us to do. And he's, he's laid it out in his book on what we should do. And we still don't follow it. We try to find pragmatic approaches around what he calls us to do. Why? Comfortability. Like you talked about, we just want to be comfortable. Absolutely. Um, so one of the thing, I mean, you asked where we want to take it. One of the thing I noticed was, uh, <clears throat> you know, I mean, obviously Nehemiah has grown leaps and bounds since chapter one to what's happened, but he still has the same, what I think is cool, the same steadfast conviction that he had at the beginning, right? When he was asking Artaxerxes for permission to go do this. And that's why he comes back on fire. You know what I mean? When he's, when he's clearing the temple um, or, or the markets. So um, one of the thing that, that stood out was how he, he's talking about, this becomes a real like plea um, personally for him. I mean, it's very personal. You can tell, but he's talking about our God, our God. And then at the end of each kind of little section, he was talking about the Sabbath or marriage. He's talking about my God, you know, and he really is thinking about like, and it, it ends with remember me. And I feel like it's kind of this personal, like I did my best, you know, I really was, was obedient to you. And I think it's one of those, like we think about, um, you know, the, the way that he is, you could just see it kind of deteriorating into this, like he's a little bit, not hopeless, but he feels a little bit helpless, I think. Um, and he's going from our God to my God and all. So. It goes back to Acts, like when I brought up about Paul, when he said, I declare today I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. I mean, mm -hmm. that's basically what he's coming back and saying at the very last sentence of this verse, remember me, 
or this chapter, remember me, oh God, for good. Like, remember that I try to get these guys to listen. I try to get them to understand. But you know what? It's not really on him. It's, you know, God, God's going to open their eyes. And he opened their eyes in chapter nine. Joby, I missed that last episode, but it was chapter nine. There you go. So um, in repentance of, you know, how they were breaking the covenant. And it, it's, it's always a thing. We're always going to be reminded of how we're breaking our covenant. And, and, and it's just human nature. It's human nature. And like that, that's why I talk about the building of this wall is also spiritual. It's a spiritual internal wall that's going to break and crack sometimes. But it's like, where do we put it? Do we put it back into our culture? Do we put it back into, you know, my God? You know, other, at this time, they're putting it back into other gods. That, are we going to do our modern God, who is us? Am I going to put it in the team of me? No, I'm going to put it in God's hands and try to try to um, patch up those cracks. And yet we always find that balance between, did I do enough? Yes, it's on them. You know, it's on them to be able to make the change. It's on them to be able to hear what I've said and to be able to correct. But then, and I am always left with this sense, this place within myself of, God, did I do enough? You know, and then I think that's where that, oh my God, oh my God, you know, remember me. Did I do enough in this season for these people at this time to be able to get them where they should be? Did I do enough as a father to raise my children, to launch them in the world, to follow after Christ? Did I do enough for my wife to know that she was truly loved, you know, her, her whole life, you know, by me and by me alone. And, you know, it just, it's that fine balance between being content, I think maybe, but then also and I'm never satisfied. You know, I'm always wanting to drive and do more and push harder and, and wherever that is. So. Well, in the way I read the last, the last part of the entire book of Nehemiah, remember me, oh my God, for good, uh, is in the Christian mind, we, we should be humble. I think we understand that, whether we do a good job of that or not. I certainly don't go, do a good job of that uh, often. But um, we should not be seeking recognition either. And I grew up, I went to a fairly competitive school for academics, for sports. I had to compete for, for scholarships and different things like that. And when you do that, when you're steeped in that level of competition, you're constantly beating your own chest because the reality of someone not trumpeting your horn for you is real. And if it's like, it, it's of no value to be the smartest kid to not get a scholarship, you know, and when you're looking, looking at it specifically as dollars and cents. And so in, then whenever I got to college, it's like, well, you don't just want to be at college. You want to be a big man on campus. You want to, you want to dominate. You want to do these different things. And so it's antithetical to the Christian worldview. You want to get to a point where you don't seek recognition. But here at the very end of Nehemiah, as he's signing off, he is seeking recognition from the best source possible from God, because the whole way when he could have, seemingly, he could have uh, enriched himself. He could have uh, surrounded himself with grandiosity and how, oh, how great he is and all these different things. But he was always prayerful, as you mentioned before uh, on a previous episode, Robert. Like, he was prayerful. He would always pause. You know, I, I think it was uh, chapter five or something like that to where it's like they, they didn't take uh, governor's rations or something like that. They still spread stuff stuff out and, like, those were really, really important things. It reminds you when you hear about people in the military where, you know, their, their general will eat last or whoever's running that team or, or the battalion or squadron or whatever, that they're going to make sure all their men are cared for before they're cared for. They're not going to stay in the officer's barracks. They're going to stay out in the crap, you know, with the grunts. And like, I, th I think that that's a very important thing because, man, I'll just be real honest. 
if if you're playing for an audience of one and that audience is supposed to be God, I lose sight of that a lot because, you know, I'm in this competitive field of you know, podcasting and speaking and all this stuff. And, you know, when someone's speaking on stage, there can't be a second person on stage because they booked that person and not you. And, oh, well, you know, there's three million podcasts out there. Well, what if you fall out of some a bunch of people's rotations? Well, that, that affects your bottom line. And I'm just trying to remember that even whenever this podcast had tens of listeners, I was working as unto the Lord. I put the same level of preparation into my interviews and my podcast as I do now with a much, much, much larger audience. And I think it's because I was trying to remember the source of where I should get my value and recognition, and that's from God. You think you think that Nehemiah, when he came back and saw that they've like slipped back into what they were before, like he could have just like got it back on his donkey and just walked you know, right back <laughs> like, to hard. Yeah, all right, deal with them. Like, yeah, like, you know, like he didn't give up on these people. You know, like I, how many times have we like try to build something up and we're building a business and then we have like these workers and then are not doing the right thing rather than be like just walking away. You know, like we're not going to walk away. Like he, he built something. God worked through him and he could have just went and walked away. I'm like, forget him, leave him in their sin. But no, he came back. He came back with throwing out people's stuff, pulling out people's hair. You know, like he came back with a vengeance and it just says, you know, verse 30, um, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. So he went after the guys that married outside of the, um, outside of their, not their race, but, uh, they're believing, um, you know, believers, uh, idolaters. So, um, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites. So fix that. And in his work, I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. So remember me, O Lord, for good. So he went back and he fixed it and hoping that he fixes it, that they're going to stay on track, which we find out they don't 600 years later, you know? Um, but he could have walked away from it all. And like, I think that's a good to ask God, remember me. I just didn't give up. You know, I, I kept fighting the good fight, you know, going back to Paul. Well, I think it's, it was holding the line. It was Robert, it was, yeah. you were saying, go ahead, Caleb. I think it's a great point too. Like, I think the way I read that, so I purified them from everything foreign is that basically everything, everything that's not of you, yeah. Lord, is gone, yeah. you know? So I think when we're like evaluating our own life, the way we spend our time, money, those things, like that's what, just look at it. Like, is this of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, also the, uh, the way that he, ends here in, in my opinion with the um um just that plea is for him it's like a cry of desperation and then i know we see it again th- those words that remember me is i think of the thief on the cross right and that's more that's different in that it's a cry of hope yeah from him so i mean it's remember remember me lord this last little bit uh, i have the new king james version with this dake study bible but um, for this Bible, I do, but it says, "Thus I cleanse them of everything." Both of yours says foreign. Mine says pagan, and yeah. it just kind of resonates in a different way. That I cleanse them from everything pagan, and I think that's right yeah. because, like, when you look at foreign, you want to think of like different ethnicities. It's no, they're right. pulling them away from pagan gods. Yeah. But if it's foreign, foreign to the Lord, like, yeah. what is foreign to God yeah. is is pagan. What is op- what know? is the opposite? Yeah. Which is foreign. So. Um, I think it's pretty cool to look at too. If we go all the way back to chapter one and just seeing him start out in lamentation and he ends in lamentation. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of the same thing we talked about last week where yeah. it's like, okay, first thing he does is he surveys the damage at night, walks around the city. And the last thing he did is he survey, surveyed what they had built. And yeah, like he was, again, people miss this when they read Nehemiah one is he was risking his life. Nehemiah wanted to, he was risking his life by looking sad in front of the king. 
because Artaxerxes saw himself as a God king, not just a king, but a God king. And if you're in the presence of God, can you be sad? Like, can you actually be sad if you're in the presence of God? Could you possibly be thinking about any of the other problems in the world, the plight of your family? No, you're in the presence of God. But he was so distraught at the, just learning about the state of a city he had never been to. Like that, that the walls were broken down and that the people were broken down. And I mean, that, that, that's a big deal. Yeah. You know, um, Ryan, you'd said something, I can't remember if it's on or off mic, but it's along the lines of being upset that the children couldn't even speak the language anymore mm-hmm. and how, when they spoke the language. And if you cut back to 24 and of course, 25 being one of my favorite parts of this verse, but is in 24 and half of their children spoke another language. They couldn't even speak the language of Judah. And if they can't speak the language, they can't interpret God's law. Yep. And so by their inability, and he came back and off of that, the next verse in 25 is, so I contended with them, I cussed at them, I hit them, I pulled out their hair, and I made them swear by God. You know, I mean, they're just, I think that, that anger of knowing that half of the kids couldn't even read the law, you know, is I think where his real frustration and therefore ended up coming up with his, you know, in being somber afterwards, but he was so much anger. Of course. I mean, how are you, how are you going to keep the covenant going if nobody knows what the covenant is? Yeah. You know, how are you going to be a people if you don't know what, you know, God's covenant is? And I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just sheer stupidity. (laughs) Well, it's so interesting to me as well, because if you, if you know much about Islam, you know that Muslims think that any uh, translation of the Quran into any languages outside of Arabic are not actually the words of God. Again, this is what the Muslims believe, but like when it's translated into English or, or German or Dutch or whatever, like it, that's not the Quran anymore. It can only be read in Arabic. And you think about it in terms of us, and I'm not saying that Christians should do this, but when you hear people that know Greek and Hebrew and they can read it in the original language, I've heard people say before, Reading the Bible in its original language is like watching, you know, a movie in color, whereas reading it in English is like watching it in black and white. I think that, you know, there are some certain problems with that, depending upon how, how far you take that out, because it's like, oh my gosh, do we actually have the words of God in front of us? Like, oh, this is scary. But I think that it's important that at this time, like Muslim culture today, you know, over a thousand years since Muhammad walked the earth and, and you know, jotted these words down, like that they still look at that. They take that seriously. If you're a serious Muslim, like that's the direction that you're going. Like you will learn Arabic so that you can read the words of God in the way it was meant to be delivered to you. So that that's not an insignificant thing. But as we see with Nehemiah, as we wrap up here, uh, again, as I mentioned last week and I mentioned this week, you would think that this was going to end on a high note, that there was going to be some sort of hopeful ending. And, you know, cause you know, we've been steeped in Disney movies growing up, but that's, that's basically not, not what happened here. If it had ended after chapter 12, it would have been okay. But what uh, the, the thing is, is it points out the fact that they did what they could do at the time. They deviated from the plan that God gave for them, but God has to take over at some point and get done what he needs to get done. And it wasn't until hundreds of years after this that he did what the prophets pointed to, which is that there was going to be a sacrificial lamb, uh, a Messiah that was going to be delivered to these people. And so that's the thing that, you know, when people look for uh, Jesus in the Old Testament and then they don't see him, like, where's Jesus in the story of Noah's Ark? Like, where's Jesus in, you know, Jonah and the whale? Like, I don't get it. Like Job and his boils. Like, what, what is, what's the point here? But it's like, just the fact that Nehemiah ends without like, 
and they lived happily ever after is pointing to the fact that God's work is not done on this planet. And it may be hundreds of years from now, it may be hundreds of milliseconds from now, but God is going to continue to work out his plan for humanity. And, it, and it's pointing out that, I mean, they knew the law, they can't keep the law, right? Just like we can't keep the law. Mm. I mean, and that's, in my opinion, that's the most clear way that this points to Jesus is that, no, God's grace is coming, the new covenant is coming, and his name is Jesus. I think it, it just comes down to faith. I mean, if you look at anything, we have faith now. We have faith in Christ and his resurrection and his death. Um, when you look at people in the Old Testament, it just came down to their faith. And I think, yeah, they weren't going to be able to fulfill the law. I mean, because it's impossible. But the ones that are blessed are the ones that had faith in God and faith in what he could do and tried to follow the law. I mean, yes, Jesus wasn't here, but I, we're going to see Moses in heaven. We're going to see David in heaven. You know, those guys are going to be there, the ones that kept the faith. Well, guys, as we wrap up Nehemiah, are there any last thoughts on the book of Nehemiah? Again, I've said it and I'll say it again. It's one of my favorite uh, books of the Old Testament, perhaps my favorite book of the entire Old Testament. There's just so much here, but anything we sign off before we uh, put a bow on Nehemiah? We got head shake, head shake, head shake. I'm good. Yep. Oh, you, you're always, you always have something else to add, I right? do. And I like, mean, but we just I covered really it so well. I study of Nehemiah. It was, it was really uh, a good book to read, um, and it, it, it opened me up a lot. Uh, spiritually. So I think it's, I think it's great. Very good. I well, think everybody should read it. Everyone should read it. You guys, you should have been reading it this entire time. Come on now. But we're going to leave that there. That puts a bow on Nehemiah, but come back next Sunday where we're going to start a new study in second Timothy. So we did first Timothy from the jump of the forging table, but next week we're going to be digging into second Timothy one. So make sure to read that. So you guys are prepared, but before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at undaunted life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Guys, if you like the forging table, the only way we're able to pull this off is because we have financial donors, just like you. We have guys doing one-time gifts and donating on a monthly basis to the content that we're doing here. That is how we keep the lights on. That is how we are able to continue to produce content like this is because we have financial donors. So the only link we've got for you today is a link to our donation page on our website, or you can just go to undaunted.life backslash donate. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>